Okay, with that, we're uh, back into our study of the book of Ephesians. And uh, last week, we got uh, through chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. And uh, I want to uh, briefly remind you of a few things that we had discussed last week. I was kind of giving you a review and, and calling you to, uh, to see that this section of text, which is Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, really is kind of Paul's conclusion to the whole letter of, of Ephesians. And uh, so I was trying to remind you of some of the themes that were in the whole book and that, uh, and that really God's purpose was kind of outlined in the book. God's purpose in salvation, God's purpose in saving us from our sins, God's purpose in creating this world order that we live in and in creating us and then saving us from our sins, from our fallen state. And I just wanted to briefly remind you about that again, that we were, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6, to be a people to the praise of His glory that the reason we were predestined and chosen and adopted in love into the family of God was that we would be a people to the praise of God's glorious grace. And then again in verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul says that we are to be a people to the praise of His glory and that it was for uh, the reason uh, that God sealed us unto the day of redemption and has given us that good security and assurance of salvation that we are to be then a people to the praise of God's glory. And so, there's a purpose even in our warfare. And so, as you're aware, this passage of uh, Ephesians 6, 10-17 is the analogy of a warfare, of a battlefield, and Paul is using that to teach us about Christian life. Paul is using that to teach us about Christian practice. How are we equipped on the battlefield? And how does that kind of flesh out in our lives? And so with that, I didn't want you to lose sight of the idea that all of these things are for a grand and glorious purpose. God has designed these things and is working them out by His good providence. Amen? And if you will, we're kind of uh, the players on that field. We are the... uh, We are the actors on the stage, if you will, in a sense. Uh, And and as we see here in this text, there's a few more actors who are involved. And and so we talked also then about the angelic conflict. And we talked about the fact that, uh, and if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, just briefly remind you there of this concept of the angelic conflict that Paul has brought into the discussion in the book of Ephesians. And talking about the fact that this great mystery of the gospel has now been revealed and God has now made the Jew and the Gentile into one body through the gospel and that in Christ He's torn down everything that divides us and He's made the church, the last part of chapter 2 there, into uh, a holy dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. And that in and through us then... God is working out His eternal purpose, which is in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. But in verse 10, 
he, he kind of talks to us just a little bit about our purpose in this, this grand design that God has. And he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And Paul introduces this idea that the church, it's through the church that God's manifold wisdom is being made known to the rulers and authorities and principalities in heavenly places. Okay? He first brought up those rulers and authorities back in chapter 1. Flip over there. And in verse uh, uh, 19 and following there, he says, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so this is where Paul first introduced this idea of rule and authority and dominion and power and that he set Christ Jesus above all those things so that Christ has sovereignty over and above every dominion, every power, every ruler, every authority that can be named. Christ is the sovereign king. Okay, And so, he's saying that in this practical purpose of saving the church and the church living out her life and her purpose to the praise of God's glory, that now His manifold wisdom is being made known to these rulers and authorities and powers and principalities. Okay? And that we see there again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And he says, this is happening in the heavenly places, which is where these rulers and authorities and powers, uh, which is their realm, okay? It's in the heavenly realm, and it's according to heavenly things and heavenly principles, okay? And this is why now when we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, we're talking about spiritual warfare, Because this warfare is waged in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. And that doesn't mean it's not in the place where your daily life is lived. As a matter of fact, it is now through the church or through the daily living out of your Christian life that God is making His manifold wisdom known to these spiritual rulers and authorities and powers. And as I said last week, somebody is watching There are many spectators on this stage. There are many spectators on this battlefield. Okay? But namely in the context of Ephesians, it is the spiritual rulers and powers and principalities of which we're going to talk about and kind of try to define for you what they are and what the Scripture might have to say about them in other places as well. But I wanted to to bring this review to your thinking, to your mind. So as we go through this text, you kind of have these overarching understanding of the whole book of Ephesians here and the purpose of God in it all. Okay? God is seeking the fame and the glory of His own name. Namely, how? Through the living out of your daily Christian life. That's how. It's now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. That when these rulers and these powers and these principalities see how you live your life, that the fame and the glory of God's praise is trumpeted before them. Amen? Okay. So you have a high and a holy purpose, don't you? 
Could you have a higher, more holy purpose than to be a people to the praise of God's glory? No, you couldn't. Think of which heavenly gifts God has bestowed upon His people, upon His church, which He bought with His own blood. Amen? Glorious, glorious truth. Okay, Uh, with that, I I want to uh, go ahead and read the context of this for you again. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read verse 10 through uh, verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen? Okay, so then, now you have the context there. And uh, I wanted just to briefly remind you of some things that we covered specifically last week right in this text. And the first one was, if you're looking at uh, chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord... And in the strength of His might. Okay, and here we were looking at this and we were seeing that Paul's first word there is finally. And so he's drawing the letter to a close. And you remember that Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 is, is, are, is the practical portion of the letter. Where Paul's giving us practical instruction on how to live the Christian life. It's a list of directives. It's a list of commandments. It's a list of information that says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it speaks to us very practically about how we live out the Christian life. And, and so, remember that in closing this practical section, Paul is going to give us some very practical things. Now, here's something I want you to grab a hold of. Okay? Here we are talking about spiritual warfare. And we're talking about spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And we're we're talking about this armor of God and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. And we're talking about all these heavenly realities. But don't divorce that from the idea that this is a very practical section of Scripture. And there isn't... It's not just about some imagery that God wants us to get where we see the beautiful literature of the Bible. You with me? 
This is about how you live your Christian life day in and day out. On Tuesday afternoon, on Thursday morning, it's about putting on the armor of God. Okay? And so I I hope that I can clearly expose that to you and help you to see what Paul is saying about how we incorporate this into our life. Okay? But but don't don't divorce yourself from this the fact that this is a very practical section of scripture. It has real meaning about how we live our daily life. And that's what the apostle is really intending to convey to us. In fact, these are his closing statements in this practical section of the book. So it's very practical, okay? But he tells us here, he says, "Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might." And you know, he says be strong But he doesn't say to be strong in your own strength. He says to be strong in the Lord. Right? That we would derive our strength from God. Right? And and all through the book we've been saying, these are very supernatural things. When we talk about marriage and God's high and holy standard for marriage and fulfilling our marriage roles, we say, how can we possibly do these things apart from divine strength? How can we possibly do these things apart from divine enablement and divine grace in order to live out this Christian life? Indeed, we can't. And the only way we're going to accomplish this is in the strength of the Lord. It's with God's power that we live out a life which is to the praise of His glory. We can't do it in our, in our own strength. In our own strength, we sin. In our own strength, that's what's gotten us into the mess we were in that we had to get saved out of. Amen? Amen. But we have the strength of the Lord. And here's what he says. He doesn't just say, draw your strength from the Lord. But listen to what he says. In the strength of His might. Now let me tell you, what kind of strength is that? What kind of strength is God's strength? Infinite. All-powerful. Omnipotent. Amen? Like we read back in chapter 1, and I'm going to remind you of that again. What kind of strength do you have, Christian? Well, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And Paul doesn't just stop there and say that you have the surpassing greatness of God's power, but he goes on to describe it. He says, um, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he points to the power of God being a power that is greater than any other power that can possibly be named. That is the surpassing greatness of the power which is toward us who believe. Amen? So we can't look at the Christian life and and think that somehow we're going to be defeated. Because this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Even our faith. A faith in who? In Christ, who is the sovereign King. You see, you know, Ephesians is about resources. Right? Let me ask you, what resources are available to you to live the Christian life? All of them. Right? Every spiritual blessing which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3. 
And they are the surpassing riches of God's grace. Amen? And so we're equipped. We have the resources. And in this text, we have the resources to fight the battle. To live in the war. And to fulfill our purpose there, which is to what? To stand. To stand. It's a different kind of warfare for Christians too, by the way. Remember, it's not in your own strength. It's in God's strength. And remember this about God's strength. It's inexhaustible. And it is a stronger strength than any other power or dominion or anything that can be named. And it's not only in this world, but it's also in the age to come. Amen? In other words, we're never going to die. We're never going to be stripped of the resource of God's power. It will be throughout all eternal ages. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Right? That in the coming ages, he says. And I explained to you when we were in that text that that's the word eonion in the Greek. And it means ages upon ages. It's a plural form of the word ages. And it means forever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen? As a matter of fact, King James translates it that way. World without end. Amen? Okay? So, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Amen? Emphasis on His. And then we we looked at uh, verse 11, which said, to put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And so, last week we just talked about these two words which say, put on. Put on. And we talked about the fact that we have a responsibility in all this warfare. Right? We have a responsibility to fulfill the directives and the commandments that God has given us and to live our life to the praise of His glory by our free choice. Amen? But we don't have to do it in our own strength. We do it with the divine resources that God has given us. Okay? But friends, listen. If you're going to stand firm in all your faith, you're going to have to put on the full armor of God. That means you've got to pick it up and you've got to put it on. Okay? Alright? And I'm not talking about some magical, mystical prayer that you wake up in the morning and say, Okay, now I'm going to put on the full armor of God. Okay? But we're talking about the way that you live out your Christian life. And as we'll see, these pieces of armor are very practical. So... <clears throat> Not only do we have a responsibility to put on this armor, but here's another wonderful benefit of it. It is the armor of God. So what does that say about the armor? What does that say about the quality of the armor? That it's divine, right? That it's going to achieve the purpose for which God made it. Amen? Which is what? that you will stand and not fall. Right? That you'll be victorious in this battle. The armor's going to fulfill its purpose if you put it on. Amen? You leave it lying on the ground, and you're liable to get hit by an arrow or two. 
Amen? How many of you have seen those arrows flying? How many of you have been ducking those this week? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, but he goes on here and he says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here Paul makes us well aware that we have a real foe in the devil, that is Satan. He is that enemy against which we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might if we hope to stand. Our ruthless adversary is described in many places. And then last week we ended and I was reading to you various quotations from the New Testament which were naming Satan. And he's called the great dragon, that great serpent of old, the devil or Satan. That, he, that Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Right? And that in other places in the scripture, he's referred to as the evil one. Okay? Even here in Ephesians 6, he's referred to as the evil one. Right? And, and so, we have a real foe. And Paul calls him here, the devil. And that in this warfare, we are to stand firm against the devil. Right? But we don't wage an open warfare with him. You see, he's a sly dog. He's a sneaky, cunning serpent. A deceiver. And a liar. Right? And so we have to stand firm against what? His schemes. His schemes, the Apostle says. If we are equipped with the full armor of God, says Paul, we will be able to stand. You see, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand. Right? So, let's ask the question. What is it that will make us able to stand in the Christian warfare? To put on the full armor of God. Amen? And so you can't just pick out one piece. You can't just say, to have great faith. Or to live a righteous life. Or to abide in God's peace. Or to, to wield the sword of the Spirit. Although all of those are necessary elements, right? We have to put on what? The full armor of God. The panoply. Remember that Greek word? Panoply describes the whole suit of armor, Right? We got to put it on. We got to put on the whole armor. And then what? We will be able to stand, Paul says. That is, versus falling, which is analogous of spiritual defeat or falling into sin and disgracing our Lord and His glorious name. Okay, think about what it means to be able to stand in the, in the Christian warfare. If we are to be a people to the praise of His glory, that our lives are a manifold witness to the rulers and the powers and principalities of God's good grace, what happens when we fall? We disgrace God's good grace. We defame His name. God said to Israel when He was rebuking them by the mouth of the prophet, He says, My name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, it's about God's name. It's about His glory. It's about His fame. We're a people to the praise of His glory. And that's why 
we are to honor God in all that we do. Why? Because we bear His name. Amen? God's got children. They're holy. God's got children. They're pure. God's got children. They are His offspring. Amen? And they don't live like a bunch of devils. You with me? Amen? Isn't that what the whole book has been about? About God's great name and His great fame and His great glory and His great resources for us to do what? To live in a manner that honors and glorifies Him. Amen? This is what the warfare is all about. It's about the glorious name of God. That's why we always say, it's all about God's glory. And that's how come every time you hear somebody praying around here, they're always saying, well, it's about the glory of God, or to the praise of His glory, or for your glory, God. Or you hear people talking, they're always throwing this term around about the glory of God. Why? Because that's the purpose of it all. That's the purpose for which God made the universe, is the glory of His name. It's just a manifestation of Himself. And you know, His is the glory. He possesses all the glory. So therefore, everything He does is glorious. Amen? How much more if He saves the people and calls them by His name and adopts them into His family, then do we become a people to the praise of His glory. Amen? Amen? So that if we're going to stand in the warfare, we're going to stand glorifying God. And, and bringing that proper honor and due, which is due to His name. Amen? Are you thankful for what God has done for you in Christ? Then honor Him and glorify Him by the way you live. Why? Because somebody is watching. Amen? Is that kind of fearful? <clears throat> So then, if we're able to stand, that is contrasted with falling. And falling then is to defame the name of God or to disgrace Him. But we have the full armor of God by which we will be able to stand and not defame His name, friends. We have good hope. We have all the resources of God to our avail. Amen? So we need to stand. And that's the apostle's exhortation. Stand firm, he says. This is an imperative military commandment. Stand firm. Okay? And of course, he repeats that several times in this text. Therefore, we are to possess good hope and courage that we can stand by the mighty power of God who possesses all power and dominion over the enemy which we fight. Let me talk to you about two promises of God for your ability to stand. The first one is Jude 24. And there Jude says, Now to him, that is Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now what is Christ able to do? To keep you from stumbling. Right? And what else? And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now, whose power is it that makes you to stand and keep you from stumbling? And whose sacrifice is it that presents you before His glorious presence blameless? 
and with great joy. Amen? You see, you stand by the resources of God. You just need to be a willing vessel. You need to love God's glory more than you love your sin. Amen? Then you'll be able to stand. How about 1 Corinthians 10.13? There Paul tells us, he says, No temptation, not one, not a single temptation, Paul says, has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Look at the promises of God. When we talk about standing, when we talk about standing against the temptations of the evil one, the Bible says that no temptation has seized us that we will not be able to stand up against, but God will provide the way of escape. Not only the way, friends. He'll provide the strength. He'll provide the power. He'll provide everything we need. But we've got to be thinking up here when the temptation comes. We've got to be thinking about those promises. They've got to be written on our hearts that we might not what? Sin against Him. You know, when the tempter came to Jesus, He came and said, Turn that stone into bread. And what did Jesus say? It is written. Amen? Written on His heart. As well as on the tablet. Amen? God help us. God help us. It is interesting that in this war... The Christian need only stand to be victorious. And here is described what we must stand against. That is, the schemes of the devil. So think about this. For the Christian to fulfill the commandment here on the battlefield, it's this simple. Look, stand. He's not saying, go conquer the next country. He's not saying, take that hill and the great guns on the top of it. What's he asking? Stand. Stand firm. Hold your position. Why? Because your position is perfect in Christ. Amen? And oh, how we discussed that when we went through the first three chapters of Ephesians. Remember we talked about positional reality? And we talked about all the benefits of God's good grace in Christ. In Him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Amen? In Him we've been predestined. In Him we've been sealed. In Him we have the promise of His kindness expressed to us in the coming ages in Christ Jesus. And in Him we're availed of all the resources of revelation and power. And even more than that, we have the glorious inheritance in the saints which has been promised to us. Right? We have all of the resources of God in Christ. And all we have to do is stand there. Hold that ground. Hold that position versus falling. Stand, Christian. Don't fall. Right? We use that term fall. We we use that term fall to describe a minister who has uh, fallen into sin and become a public disgrace. We say that he fell. Right? We use that term to describe what happened to Satan when he was cast out of heaven. And we call that the fall of Satan. 
And we call that the, the fallen angels. The ones who did not leave, uh, uh, keep their former habitation, but were cast down. Right? They're fallen angels. They have fallen. Satan has fallen. We use that word fall to describe what? What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? Right? The fall of man, we call it. The fall of man. What did he do? He transgressed the law of God and became liable to the consequence of God's law, which is death. Amen? Adam and Eve fell. They fell from that sinless state and became sinners. Amen? Along with the devil and his fallen angels. Amen? The Christian need only stand. The Christian need only stand. Interesting thing to consider. What kind of battle, what kind of warfare do you go in and all you got to do is stand? Interesting. Think of all the things that implies about Christian life. Remember I keep telling you to slow down when you read the Scripture? Meditate and think about it? Here's two words for you. Stand firm. That's all you need to do. Stand firm in that good position that you have in Christ Jesus. In the grace of God. In the love of God. In the protection of God. In the power of God. And all the other resources that Paul tells us in Ephesians that we have. Amen? Okay, but look what he says here. What do we stand against? We stand against the schemes of the devil. Now get this. The Greek word... Used here is the word methodia, methodia, and means trickery and carries the idea of a carefully planned method or scheme. It describes the devil's warfare. It is the deceitful scheming or cunning craftiness. You see, he's a schemer. He's crafty. Remember when it described the serpent's approach to Eve in the garden? And it said, now the serpent was more crafty than all the other animals in the garden. Right? And it's giving you an imagery of Satan as a, as a, as a crafty snake. Okay? You see, that's how he fights. That's what his warfare is like. He's cunning. He's sly. He's deceitful. Okay? He's a liar. When he opens his mouth, that's all that comes out is lies. He's a liar. He's always been a liar. The same word is used in Ephesians 4.14 there. And it talks about the deceitful scheming and cunning craftiness of false teachers. There in Ephesians 4.14. You see, this is how the devil fights. He fights with carefully planned methods. He fights with, with carefully crafted schemes to deceive you. Okay? I want to read you some comments from Albert Barnes about the, the schemes of the devil. Or if you're reading in the King James, it's the wiles of the devil. That word wiles, it's pretty foreign to me. It's old English. I think of wild E. Coyote. You know who he is? He's that guy chasing uh, the roadrunner around in the cartoons. Right? And why is he wild E. Coyote? Because that's his warfare, man. He's wily. He's always 
thinking up a method or a scheme to get the roadrunner. You seen that? Right? You know, he sees the roadrunner booking down the road, so he runs over here and he puts some dynamite out in the thing and hides behind the rock, you know, and he's going he's gonna to blow it. He's got a scheme. He's got a method. He's got a while by which to get that roadrunner, right? It's kind of like the devil. <coughs> devil sees you coming down the street, and he goes and gets in the way and puts some dynamite in the road and hides behind the rock. And what happens? He loses every time. Because you stand in all the resources of God. And the bombs always blow up on the coyote, don't they? And if you've read the end of the book, it says that the devil gets thrown into the lake of fire. Amen? Glorious truth. Man, what a saga. It's been going on for some 6,000 years now. Amen? Barnes comments, against the wiles of the devil. He says, the word rendered wiles, methodia, means properly that which is traced out with method, that which is methodized, and then that which is well laid, art, skill, cunning. It occurs in the New Testament only in Ephesians 4.14 and in this place. It is appropriately here rendered wiles, meaning cunning devices, arts, attempts to delude and destroy us. The wiles of the devil are the various arts and stratagems which he employs to drag souls down to perdition. We can more easily encounter open force than we can cunning, and we need the weapons of Christian armor to meet the attempts to draw us into a snare, as much as to meet open force. The idea here is that Satan does not carry on an open warfare. He does not meet the Christian soldier face to face. He advances covertly, makes approaches in darkness, employs cunning rather than power, and seeks rather to deceive and betray than to vanquish by mere force. Hence the necessity of being constantly armed to meet him whenever the attack is made. And of course the idea here is to have on the armor, having put on the breastplate, having girded up the loins with truth, having shod the feet, Past tense. Why? So that whenever he attacks by ambush, in darkness, that you're standing with the full armor. Amen? A man who has to contend with a visible enemy may feel safe if he only prepares to meet him in the open field. But far different is the case if the enemy is invisible. If he steals upon us slyly and stealthily. If he practices war only by ambushes and surprises. Such is the foe that we have to contend with. And almost all the Christian struggle is a warfare against stratagems and wiles, schemes. Satan does not openly appear. He approaches us not in repulsive forms, but comes to recommend some plausible doctrine, to lay before us some temptation that shall not immediately repel us. He presents the world in an alluring aspect, invites to pleasures that seem to be harmless, and leads us in indulgence until we have gone so far that we cannot retreat. Sound like the way some of us are dragged away into sin? I like to use the analogy of fishing. Right? You're sitting up in the boat, Grandpa and Charlie, and you got a bucket full of shrimp. You pull out one of them nice, big, juicy shrimp, and you get the hook, and you hook him on there, and you drop him down in the water, and what are you trying to do? You're like wily e. Coyote. 
You're trying to deceive the fish, right? So what are you doing? Well, you're telling the fish, look, fishy, here's dinner. Here's dinner, fishy, right? Fish comes swimming along, sees that big old shrimp. What's he say? Wow! Some plausible doctrine. Some, some alluring bit of shrimp. Right? Right? And what's he do? Comes up and takes that whole dude, doesn't he? Next thing he knows, he is dinner. Right? You see, that's how the enemy wages his war. He's a schemer. He's got a method to drag you off into sin. And he's got all the devices of the world in order to carry it out. And not only that, but you have a propensity to follow it, don't you? You're not just fighting the world and the devil and the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, but you've got to deal with the flesh. Amen? But listen, you stand in all the resources of God. And we're not unaware, Paul says, of the schemes of the devil. We know how he fights. We know what his warfare is like. We're looking for that shrimp. Right? We're looking for that cunning craftiness. The first thing that ought to go off in your head like a big alarm is when it's alluring. When it's popular. You know, this stuff sweeps through the church, man. And the church wants to just get on the bandwagon, right? If it's popular, it must be true. What was your first clue that it wasn't? Popularity. Right? If it's popular, let me tell you, the big red flag ought to be waving. Okay? Jesus was real popular. Until they stopped to hear what he had to say. And then they wanted to put him on a cross. Amen? So, we wage war to do what? To stand firm. All we got to do is stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Don't let him deceive you. Don't let him be sly and cunning so that he tricks you. Okay? But stand firm in all the armor of God. We're going to talk about what that is. Paul's going to describe that to us. A couple places in the Scripture where this kind of a concept is is used. You see, the devil seeks to deceive us and lead us into sin, just as he did Eve in the garden. And this is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 11.3. There he says, But I am afraid, you Corinthians, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, Paul's instructing the Corinthians. And he's saying, look, I'm afraid that the deceiver has gotten so crafty as to lead you astray from simply worshiping Christ and living your life for Him. Even as he did Eve. You see, Paul talks about the serpent being a deceiver and being very crafty. He's got a method. He's got a scheme. He's wily. He's looking for a way to deceive you. Okay? But look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10-11. There he says, But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, 
If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Okay, I want to give you a little background on that scripture right there. If you were reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see where they, um, they exercised church discipline on a man who was being sexually immoral in the church. And Paul said, put that man out of the fellowship. He's defaming the great name of God. Put him out. And don't even eat with a so-called brother who says he's a brother and yet lives in immorality or drunkenness or sin. He says, how can you Christians do such a thing? He says, don't you know a little, a little lump leavens the whole? Right? He says, put him out of the fellowship. So they did. But then in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, they have received this one back. Right? And here Paul makes reference. And this is what he says. He says, he says, look, it's okay for you to forgive this guy. It's okay for you to forgive this sinner. Right? Because I've forgiven him also. And he says, look at the purpose for which Paul forgave him that no advantage may be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. You see, Satan had a scheme. What was Satan's scheme? That the church wouldn't forgive the man. After he had come back repenting of his immorality and saying, Oh, I see my sin. I'm broken over my sin. I've repented of my sin. Let me back into the family of the church. Affirm God's grace to me. Right? Satan would have the church to banish him eternally. But Paul says, no, forgive him. Why? Because we're not ignorant of that devil. Amen? And so, you see how Paul says that's a scheme of the devil? And that we're not unaware of him? And that granting forgiveness to this brother is how we stand firm in all the truth? Amen? See how practical that is? You grant forgiveness to the brother and you're not overtaken by the schemes of the devil. Amen? Glorious thing. Glorious thing to see there. For he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that sinning brother. That's not where our struggle is. Amen? What's it against, Paul? It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here he describes the beings that we're at war with. Okay? The very nature of Christian life is a struggle. How many of you have realized that? <laughs> yeah. The very nature of Christian life is a struggle. We wrestle, right? If you have a King James, that's what it says there. It says we wrestle, okay? Same kind of word. Struggle, fight, wrestle, okay? We wrestle or struggle with powerful foes as we live out our days. But these foes are not physical. That is, they are not flesh and blood. And that's what Paul means when he says they're not flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. What's he mean? It's not with people. Our struggle is not with people. Now I want to ask you a question. 
How often do we Christians have struggle when we think our struggle is with people? Because people are difficult, aren't they? Especially me. How about you? Are you difficult? <laughs> but friends, our struggle is not with people. We can't go living the Christian life thinking our struggle is with people. It's not with people. That's why we have to forgive. That's why we have to exercise grace and kindness and patience and humility and love. Right? Because it's not with people. It's about God's glory. The struggle is about God's glory. The struggle is about you manifesting the grace and the love of God that He's shown to you in Christ to others. So that men will see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what the struggle is all about. It's about the glory of God. Amen? It's not with men or women. But here he describes our struggle with spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now that's where the struggle is. The struggle is against evil. Wickedness. That is in the world. Why? Because that is the antinomy to holiness. That is the thing which is at war with God who is pure and holy and righteous altogether. Sin is the opposite of righteousness, of truth. You have sin, you have lying, you have deceit, you have darkness. God is truth, light, righteousness, purity, holiness. Right? Sin is all of the antinomies to that. And so our enemy is characterized by those things. They are spiritual forces of wickedness, he says. There is a spiritual warfare, and it is waged on a spiritual battlefield with spiritual weapons. Here our adversaries are described as rulers and powers and world forces. Rulers and powers and world forces. Okay, these words. The word rulers is the Greek word kosmokrator, and it means a world ruler. A world ruler. Literally, two words. Cosmo, Krator. Cosmo, or the cosmos, that means the world, the created order of things. Krator is the word ruler. Cosmo, Krator, a world ruler. One who rules in the cosmos. Okay? The Bible says your struggle as a Christian is with the Cosmo, Krator. Cosmo, Krator. Interesting. Interesting terms. The word powers. Okay? This is the Greek word excusia. Excusia. And it means a delegated influence or authority. Okay? So now what's it talking about? An underling. One whose authority has been delegated to him. It implies rank and order. You see, cosmocrator? That means ruler. Right? Excusia, that means delegated authority. One who serves as a minion under another. So now what we see is in these heavenly powers, we can call them demonic fallen angels if you want. There is a rank and an order and a file to their level of authority in their kingdom. Okay? 
And you see that in these words. That's what these words imply. The word powers is the word that implies a delegated influence. Okay? Or he may even have a specific jurisdiction. Or he's, uh, it's also used as a judge, a magistrate. Okay? Or a potentate. He has a certain jurisdiction. You know, a judge is a judge where? You know, he's a judge in Bernalillo County. Or he's a judge in, you know, the Supreme Court. Where's his jurisdiction? Well, the, the federal government. You know, a judge is, is, is delegated a certain amount of authority over a certain dominion, okay? Same with the word excusia. Same with the word powers. So what does that mean? Well, it simply means to us that our struggle is, is with heavenly beings that have a different rank and order and file. Okay? That's what it means. And then he uses this word, world forces. Okay? Now, this is the word arc. This is the word arc. And it means a principality or a principle. It means the chief. Okay, so these are chief forces. These are principal forces. Let me give you another term you're more familiar with. Archangels. Archangels. Okay, but these are not archangels like the archangel Gabriel. Or archangels like the archangel Michael. You see, those are very powerful, highly ranking, holy angels. They've never sinned. They are without sin. They're holy. These here are archangels, or what he says, world forces of this darkness, or spiritual forces of wickedness. These are wicked archangels. Okay? And again, it's speaking of those archangels, those angels who hold a high place of authority, principalities, okay? That's why also when we talk about governing authorities, we call them what? Principalities. A principality is a domain that's governed by a prince, right? He is king over that jurisdiction. We, we, we use the same, a similar kind of a word, a municipality. A municipality is what? It's a certain jurisdiction. Albuquerque is a municipality, right? And it has borders. It has jurisdiction that don't go beyond that. We don't, we don't put the laws of Albuquerque on the people who live in Moriarty. Why? Because our jurisdiction is only in this municipality. Okay? These are the kind of terms the Bible uses to describe angels and demons. Principalities. They have jurisdictions. They have order in the world. And if Satan is, like Jesus calls him, the ruler of the world, if he's the cosmocrator, and he has archangels under him, and excusia under that delegated authority, minions, then you kind of get an idea of what the spiritual kingdom of darkness is like. Okay? You get a brief glimpse of that in the book of Daniel, right? How many are familiar with the Chapter 10 in Daniel, and Daniel is praying, and he's talking about this angelic warfare that's going on. He's, you know, the prince of Persia, and you, you, you get the sense, and of course, guys have taken that whole thing and run down the street with it and implied all kinds of things with it. But the idea is simply that in the kingdom of darkness, as in the kingdom of God, with the angels, there is a rank, an order, a file. And God has told us this for a purpose, friends. God has told us this for a purpose. Well, let me, let me give you a for instance. He's talking about what? The schemes of the devil. The methods of the devil. And then he says your struggle is against these rulers, these 
uh, uh, archangels, these minions, okay, so that it's carefully crafted and it's going to be carried out on a strategic battlefield. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't think that all this evil that's going on isn't carefully crafted, because it is. It is a method. It is a scheme. And it's being carried out by a great dark force in heavenly places. You could see this if you went into a place and tried to throw down the powers of sin in that place. Like, for instance, there, there are Christian groups who try to wage war against things like, in America, the pornography industry. Right? Pornography industry uh, literally makes trillions of dollars every year. Okay? You want to know where the power is? Follow the money. Okay? You think it's an impenetrable force? How easy do you think would it be for a group of Christians to go out and throw down the pornography industry in the United States? You think that would happen overnight? How come? Because it's a verily carefully crafted, powerful scheme being carried out by the rulers of this dark world. Can't see them. Why? Because they're in heavenly places. They're invisible. They're cunning. They're crafty. They are extremely powerful. Right? They're extremely powerful. Consider it. Why does Jesus call Satan the ruler of this world? Because he says, this isn't my world. I come from another place. If this were my world, he said, my servants would fight and you people wouldn't have any hope. Right? But I'm not from this place, he says. And neither are we. That's why they call us pilgrims and strangers. Amen? You wonder why there's so much evil in the world? Well, let me tell you. It's being governed by very powerful spiritual forces of wickedness who God has given authority and dominion to exercise all their goodwill right now in this place for the purpose of God. That He might do what? Call you and me out of that darkness into His wonderful light. That we might be a people to the praise of His glory. So that when He is done saving us and justifying us and sanctifying us and glorifying us, His purpose is fulfilled. His kingdom will be consummated. And all of that which is in rebellion of God will be done away with eternally in the lake of fire. Amen? And this present earth will be what? As Peter puts it, baptized in fire. Amen? And behold, I will make a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But this will be the home of righteousness, says Peter. Amen? It's going to be in that place where there is no more sin, or dying, or crying, or mourning, or pain. And they will do no more harm on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Amen? I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Man, I'm ready to get there. I'm tired of this warfare. How about you? At the same time, there's a great sense of fulfillment that comes from it, isn't there? There's a grand and glorious, awesome thing as you consider all that God is doing in the church and in the world. It's amazing. It's far beyond anything man could ever possibly imagine. Men are like grass. 
the Word of God stands forever. So this enemy that we fight is rulers and powers and world forces, spiritual forces, it says, of wickedness in heavenly places. These no doubt refer to that heavenly rank and order of demonic powers arrayed against God and His saints in the great conflict of the ages of history. You know, think about it. This has been going on for a while now. You know, war and pain and death and hurting and suffering has been going on for some time. God has been progressively revealing Himself to mankind throughout the ages of history. And He's promised a deliverance, which He said is coming soon and very soon. Amen? So lift up your heads. When you see all these things coming to pass, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh or near. Amen? These world forces of wickedness are described elsewhere in the New Testament. You could look at Colossians 1.16. There, Christ is the creator of them. There, in Colossians 1, it says that, for by Him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and what? Invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Christ and for Christ. You see that? Now think about this. You belong to Christ. You're waging war against rulers and authorities. And guess what? They were made by Christ and for Christ. Amen? And that's why Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He says what? Shall angels or demons? Right? Or tribulations or conflict? And a big long list of life or death or anything else in all the world cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Amen? Why? Because His dominion is a dominion which is far above all rule and authority, powers and principalities, and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Amen? You're a child of the sovereign king. And you will be victorious. Why? Because he is able to keep you from falling and to present you before himself blameless and with great joy. Amen? Amen. Colossians 1.13, it says there that Christ delivered us from the dominion of darkness or the domain of darkness. What is this? Domain of darkness. So we've been describing it. You want to see the domain of darkness? Turn on the evening news. You with me? A little bit of conflict going on in the Middle East? How about in Korea? Right? How about down the street? How about down the street? Have you looked in Africa lately? A little bit of unrest? Yeah? Which African country you want to talk about? Talk about the Sudan. I mean, you know anything about what I'm talking about. We're talking about the domain of darkness. Okay, you see, this world is ruled by the devil. It is a very wicked place. Amen? Just open your eyes and look around. You'll see the domain of darkness. That's what the Scripture says that we have been rescued from. And they're transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? We're no longer subject to the domain of darkness. But now we're subject to the real king. To him who has power over these 
forces. In fact, he created them for his purposes. Amen? How about Colossians 2.15? There it talks about the cross. And it says that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Okay? That through the cross, Christ triumphed over these rulers, over this domain of darkness. This is how the scripture speaks about these entities, these rulers, these powers, these authorities. They were made by Christ. They have a domain in the world. And Christ has disarmed them. Amen? There's this whole sense in the book of Colossians. You know, there it talks about people who worship angels. Right? And, and Paul talks about the various ways they do that and how deceptive it is. Well, he's writing there in Colossians. Look, Christ created these beings. And He has power over them. And we've been delivered from their domain, he says. And Christ, in chapter 2, has disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen? That's how the New Testament speaks about these, these enemies that we fight with. You see, this is who our struggle is with, these principalities and these powers. But Christ has disarmed them. You with me? Are you with God? That's what He says. He says He's disarmed them. And He says all you got to do now is stand firm. Right? Stand firm, therefore. Take up the full armor of God, He says. These spiritual forces of wickedness are said to be in heavenly places. This is the same term used in Ephesians 1.3, 2.6, and 3.10. And it's used to denote the spiritual nature of the enemies and promises of God. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Okay? In Ephesians 3.10, that's where it said that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the principalities and the powers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It describes their nature. They're not on earth. They're heavenly. They're spiritual. They're invisible. Right? These are who we wage war with. But Paul says for us, he says, Therefore, because your struggle is against these spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, he says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. Right? Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against these whom you struggle, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And then he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And again, what is it that the Christian need do? Stand. Stand in that glorious position that you have in Christ. Amen? Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we thank You for these glorious words. I pray, God, that You would help us to to gain from this passage of text, O Lord, those things which apply to our everyday life. Lord, help us to see the great warfare that we're involved in. God, help us to remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, God. 
Oh, Lord, fill our hearts with your grace and your forgiveness. Fill our hearts with your divine love, God. Fill our hearts with your humility, Father, that we might minister your grace and your love to people and so bring glory and honor to your name, God. Father, we thank you for the privilege of of such wonderful, clear words in your scripture. I pray that you would impress them on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them to our minds each and every day as we love you and we serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.